Well, this is Memorial Day weekend, a time when we as a, a nation, we honor those who have died while in uniform service to our, our country. It's a time of the year when we reflect upon the, the freedoms that we have that came at the cost of other people. And the history of, the, of uh, Memorial Day really comes back to the Civil War days when uh, more than 500,000 Americans lost their lives, both north and south. And there was in our nation just this, this pull and remembrance to uh, re- remember those people who died uh, from the north or from the south, just, just decorating, um, decorating graves. In fact, that practice is known today. In fact, initially, um, uh, Memorial Day was known as Decoration Day. A time in which to just decorate those who'd fallen in war. And uh, the first day was celebrated May 30th, 1868. Now that's 149 years ago, if my math is quickly right right now. It's a long time ago where they're decorating the, the graves. And, the, and the, grave was cho- the date was chosen because there was specifically no anniversary of any specific battle on that day. They could remember all who've fallen in, in all of their, their battles. And May 30th is a day because flowers are in bloom on May 30th. And May 30th is David's birthday. So maybe they knew that. And it's uh, Amy Lask's birthday as well. She's off camping or something right now, I think. Um, they share a birthday exactly 20 years apart. So that was pretty, pretty special. Um, but... The last Monday in May became the official date, 1971, today in which we remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And, and the number of Americans who have died in the service of our country is a lot, um, more than a million. But you just see, you see there on the graphic overhead how many died in the, the Civil War, like some 600,000 up there, and then World War I and, and World War II especially. And then, you know, those numbers, how do you, how do you exact add? Who knows? But, but those are some of the people. And, and so today's a day we remember like the, uh, the 2,300 military personnel who died, American personnel who died um, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. The Japanese bombed our nation. Um, today, today we remember the, the 10,000 Allied forces who died on the beach of Normandy. June 6, 1944, 6,000 of them being American, eventually there to, to capture Normandy, the key battle that, that turned the, the face of uh, World War II, 100,000 U.S. ground forts just died. With more than a million fatalities in our history, you know what, there are a million stories that could be told, a million people that could be remembered. We just look back and... So many of them are just, are just lost. We don't know the story of many of them. And some, some were tragic, killed by friendly fire perhaps, or caught in tr- crossfire or wiped out by a, a bomb or just someplace accidental. But, but some died as heroes, like these men, Alexander Good of New York and George Fox of Pennsylvania and Clark Poling of Ohio, John Washington of New Jersey. These men were chaplains aboard a... The Army transport ship, the Dorchester, in World War II. And in February 3rd, 1943, they were up around Greenland. And a German U-boat spied them and torpedo 
hit the Dorchester right in the middle. It began to sink, and in all the chaos and all the pandemonium, these chaplains did what chaplains do, providing guidance and providing comfort and providing direction and hope in time of distress, right? Distributing life jackets and directing personnel to the evacuation ports and to the lifeboats. And when the life jackets wore, ran out, these four chaplains gave their life jackets to other soldiers who didn't have them. And these four chaplains went down with the ship, but those who survived, survived to tell their story. And, and their story was so famous that... Um, was told far and wide in 1948 it was a three-cent stamp, which paid a lot more than a three-cent stamp would today. But these men were immortalized, and Memorial Day is a day to remember men like this who gave their lives. Or just another story, men like Leslie Sabo, valiant in war on May, May 10th, 1970, fighting in Cambodia in the, the, the uh, Vietnam War, what was known today as the the Mother's Day ambush. The North Vietnamese surrounded the Americans and ambushed them. And at one point, a a North Vietnamese threw a a grenade at a soldier on the ground, an injured soldier. And uh, Leslie Sabo saw it and ran over and covered the injured soldier, taking some of the shock of the grenade himself. Though he, he had several wounds, he wasn't mortally wounded until that night. When a helicopter, a medical helicopter was coming, he was providing some cover. And then he, when he was reloading his ammunition, he was mortally wounded. But yet he still had some strength. And his last dying strength, he crawled into enemy camp with his own grenade. Threw at the last possible moment at the, uh, the enemy bunker. The explosion silenced the bunker and cost Sabo his life. He gave his life for our freedom. And these are two stories of a million that can be told. My point this morning isn't to tell about fallen war heroes, but I want you to think about these heroes. Think about their life, because it's a long road from civilian life to dying in battle. At one point, every fallen soldier was a civilian, and at one point they entered a a recruiter's office and enlisted in the military. They, they filled out the paperwork. They did background checks, whatever, the health checks and things like that. And when it was finally, yes, they can come in. They took the oath of enlistment, which goes like this. I, whatever, Leslie Sabo, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same And that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. And with such an oath, they present themselves to the United States to be a a soldier. And basically they sign up for hardship and potentially even death. And I think that's why we honor those who have died in military service because they have willingly put their name forward and says, I will defend this country what I can. Not not just some someone off the street. This is someone who signed up for hardship and in that we can embrace and rejoice. Really my question to you today though is this have you presented yourself with an oath of allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Have you taken the oath of allegiance to Jesus? Which maybe reads something like this. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died. 
By God's grace, I'll serve the Lord with all my heart for all my days, so help me God. Have you done that? Willingly submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ, saying, I'm going to serve Him, I'm going to serve for the kingdom, and by God's grace, I will serve the Lord with all my heart for all of my life. Well, our text this morning really calls us to enlist in God's army in the war against sin. So if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles. I haven't done so yet to Romans chapter 6. My Bible kind of naturally falls open there. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, you can. uh, Take a pew Bible, page 943. You pew Bible ahead of you will, will find yourself there. My message this morning is entitled, Presenting Yourselves. Presenting yourselves, because that's what Paul is calling all of us to do. He's calling us to present ourselves to God. In fact, as I read my text, verses 13 to 19, I want you to listen for this phrase, present yourself, or present your members, or somehow just just that I'm giving myself, I'm I'm presenting myself right there. Romans 6.13 Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And I trust you can see how often it is that we need to present ourselves. Twice there in verse 13, it says that we are to present ourselves, not to sin, but we present ourselves to righteousness. It shows up there in verse 15 or 16. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? And then verse 19, it appears twice. You once presented your members to impurity and lawlessness, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness. It is the predominant idea of the passage to present yourself, to take yourself and put yourself in the enlister's office. The Lord Jesus Christ. My first point is this: report for duty. Taking this, taking this military sort of, sort of presenting yourself. Report for duty. Verse thirteen. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I trust you can see there are two simple commands there. The first is, do not present your members to sin. And the second command there is the same, present yourselves to God. Now, before we actually talk about those commands, it is very important we put those in context, like I I talked about last week. Last week we looked at verses 11 and 12, the very first two commands in all the book of Romans. 
Command number one in verse 11, command number two in verse 12, and now we're coming in verse 13, command number three and four. And Paul's delay in giving a command is instructive. He first talks about our sin, chapters one through three. Then he talks about our salvation, chapters three through five. And now, and only now, does he talk about our sanctification. And I talked about it last week and I talked about it again. That order is of all importance. It's salvation first and then sanctification. Lest you think coming here just this morning and you hear these commands, you think that somehow you're going to clean yourself up and get right with God by obeying these commands. These are overflows of salvation. These are the commands to those who have enlisted. They're commands to everyone who knows God. The first command, verse 11 Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We looked at it last week, right? Win the war with your mind, right? Consider yourself, think yourself, regard yourself, reckon yourself. I'm dead to sin, alive to God. I'm dead to sin, alive to God. I'm dead to sin, alive to God. That is the reality of all who have trusted in Christ. They're dead to sin and alive to God. So regard yourself. How can you live in sin? You're dead to sin. Verse 12, Paul moves to the second point. moves from the mind to the will. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. My exhortation there was win the war of your will. That is, don't let your body control you. You control your body. You be in control. You tell your body what to do. Don't let your body and the lusts and the passions and the desires of your body run and rule your life. Verse 13, if I would have gotten to it last week, my point would have been this. Win the war with your members. That is, don't use your members of your body as instruments for sin, but rather use the members of your body as instruments for righteousness. Now, before we, we go on, we need to think about this word instruments because when we think of instruments, we can easily think about trombones and, and trumpets and violins and clarinets. But that's not the kind of instruments we're talking about here. We can think about surgical instruments. But here what Paul is talking about is weapons. Think more swords and arrows and spears and clubs. That's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, that's how this word is translated in all the rest of the New Testament. Is weapons, armor. So you might read verse 13 like this. Do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. So, you know, we we can think about all types of weapons and these are our sorts of weapons, but one of the weapons we have is ourselves. I mean, all these things, a sword or a spear or a club or an arrow lies limp apart from the energizing power of a man taking up that club, taking up that sword, and wielding it. And you think about today, all the power we have with the air power, or the, the tanks, or the ships, or the cruise missiles, or whatever we have, there's something that's all human-powered. We design it, we set it into motion. That's what Paul's talking about. He's, he's talking about ourselves, our bodies, our weapons. I remember one time when I was in Los Angeles, um, I have a friend of mine who, who was a police officer there, and he asked me if I wanted to drive along. And so I said, yeah. And so we drove along to all the different places of uh, different 
crimes and places where he would be. And I, I understood then that a policeman is basically most often just a glorified babysitter <laughs> is all he is. But there was one guy who was high on drugs maybe, drunk, whatever, roommates complaining about him. And he came in, he was pretty disheveled, and he was sitting on his couch or sitting on his bed and kind of lost it. And, and he was making some threats at his uh, roommates or something. And, and then he went like this. These hands are lethal weapons. And like, you know, he was just, he was just so out of his mind. But you know what? Your hands are lethal weapons. They are weapons to be used as instruments for righteousness, not for sin. And so Paul isn't talking about a musical concert. He's talking about war. He's talking about war with sin, with the members of our body. And so he says simply, present your members in the fight of faith for sanctification. In fact, that's why I've been using military illustrations here beginning with uh, Memorial Day is because this word is instruments of warfare is what we're, we're talking about here. It's a war against sin and, and Paul simply calls us to report for duty, right? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So picture yourself standing before the enlisting officer Presenting yourself as a candidate and you, you signed your papers. What have you done? You've just signed away your life. No longer will you decide where you're going to live. The military will tell you where to live. No longer will you decide what you're going to do. The military will tell you what to do. Now the military will equip you. And train you and provide everything that you need in order to carry out your duties. But as a member of the military, you are under orders. And you may fight for your country. You may die in battle. And you may be just one of those million stories remembered on Memorial Day. But that's the life of a soldier and that's the life of a believer in Jesus It's a life God calls us to live, a life that takes our members, our body, and submits them, presents them to God, and says, here I am. Have you done that? It's interesting, though. I'm not sure that Paul is so much emphasizing here about just a one-time commitment as he is a continual presenting yourself, continually reporting for duty. You know, there are many soldiers who are, who are there and they report for duty and then at some point they go AWOL. They just didn't show up for some reason. They went off. They're absent without leave. And there's discipline that must take place there. But Paul is saying, no, don't go AWOL. Don't just think because I've signed on some line, I'm in, I'm okay. A soldier who just signed on the line says, okay, I'm, I'm set, is not. Soldier needs to fight daily, and so likewise we need to report for duty. My second exhortation comes along the same military lines, and a bit, a bit illustrative, a bit poetic maybe, but I just say this, love your country. That's what we do at a Memorial Day, right? We, we love our country. One of the most iconic images of World War II is the rising of the flag on Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima. February 23rd, 1945. How many have seen this picture? Almost all of you, right? And it evokes pride in the American people of just seeing these soldiers well, well fought and, and finally planting that, that flag and, and claiming that island for their own. 
don't know if you know the story of Iwo Jima. It's a volcanic island located halfway between Japan and the Mariana Islands. Now, uh, uh, American owned and dominated the Mar- Mariana Islands, and it was kind of a halfway point, so it was a strategic fighting battle. And it was used by the Japanese as an early, early um, warning system, so they could see the bombers flying over on uh, Iwo Jima and then be able to report, hey, bombers are coming. Wish we had that at Pearl Harbor. We didn't, or maybe they skirted, whatever. But that, it, was, it was for warnings. And so to capture this island would weaken the Japanese early warning system. But it was heavily fortified with the Japanese. Um, they had um, dugouts. And they had uh, just different places, tunnels and things like this. And the evading Marines suffered high casualties in Iwo Jima. But it, at this moment, there was little resistance because the Marines had just... Um, had just bombarded the Japanese who were bunkered down in their, their cave bunkers and their pillboxes of being bu- bombarded. And the, and the flag actually was attached to some Japanese, um, uh, like an iron wire, water pipe found. And it was the raising of the national colors when they did that, immediately brought cheers all around. Cheers up there on top. And May, Mar- Mariners and uh, Marines and sailors and guardsmen on the beach below saw it and cheered loudly. And, and, and even they, they honked their horns, they blasted their ship's horns, and the Japanese like, what happened? Right? And then when they figured out what happened, they continued to fight, and it took another ten days before the island was totally captured. In fact, I think even a month before the capture, the island was totally under American control. And today we see this image, and we see the sacrifice taken in this Memorial Day. And it can stir up for us a, a love for our country. When we see people who sacrificed greatly. right? And, and I'd argue this. Those who serve the military best are often those who love their country the most. You, know, you ever seen um, men in fatigues running around with an American flag? There's like the spirit that can come in as they, they love their country. When a, a soldier proudly waves that flag, there's little that stands between that man and great sacrifice. When you think about loving your country, I think about James Ken- John Kennedy, his inaugural address in 1961. My fellow Americans, ask not what country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, right? In other words, right, don't go into everything only looking what you can get. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? But look to see what you can give for ways to serve others. And this love of country metaphor, I think, works in verses 14 and 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. So let's think about it. When you come to Christ, what sort of master do you serve? Do you serve a tyrant? Or a despot? Or a dictator? Do you serve a king who's a megalomaniac? Who, who just serve, you have to serve him at his whim, whatever he says. Or do you serve a, a gracious Lord who draws you into loving service? One commentator said it this way, The law is able to do many things. It commands, it demands, it rebukes, it condemns, it restrains. But there's one thing the law can never do. It cannot save. And likewise, I'd even like to add this. Not only can the law cannot save, the law cannot sanctify Oh, the law can bring some external conformity that perhaps looks like 
some sanctification. But external conformity to a list of commands is not biblical sanctification. Okay? Do you know what external conformity to a lot of external commands is? External command to a lot of duties, you know what that's called? Legalism. Or external command to a lot of duties. It's not biblical sanctification. Biblical sanctification is, is from the heart that flows out. In, in fact, we're going to get in a few moments. Look at verse 17 where Paul is going. He says, Thanks be to God that you Romans who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. They once were slaves of sin. But now they become obedient, what? From the heart. And I think that's the idea here at uh, loving your country. Is this getting at the heart. Right? In other words, right, know the way of your master. Your master saves by grace. He doesn't demand submission right, by law and authority. He brings submission by promise and power. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's a promise. That's a promise. Sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. No, Paul didn't say, sin should not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. It's not a should not, it's a will not. It's a a promise. Paul's getting here at the, the power of grace. It won't have power of your life. You know, it's a little like Jesus was getting at in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you love me, you should keep my commandments. Love to Jesus will express itself in obedience to his word. But when his obedience is absent, it calls into question the love. But the love is the power that motivates, that stirs obedience. When it comes to Romans 6.14, you might say it a different way. If you are under grace, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin can have a heyday under the law, but it cannot flourish under grace. See, when it comes to keeping the law, I just know how deceitful our hearts are. And I know how there's just like these external expectations. And if that's what I have to do, we'll seek shortcuts. Students will do the minimum that they need to do. Right? We'll, we'll push the edge of speeding so that we aren't speeding technically. We can tell white lies. Right? They're white because they're sanctified. Right? They're, they're, they're really true, though it was really not true. Right? Justification for porn. Well, it's not adultery. I didn't touch... I just looked, right? It's how people can hate in the heart. Well, I haven't murdered them. I haven't said anything. Well, it's still there in the heart. And Jesus, of course, addressed all those things in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, you can read them. Taking things deep into the heart. And see, that's what grace does. Grace penetrates deep into the heart, far beyond the power of any law to accomplish any sanctification work. It penetrates deep And how easy it is to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit. But when grace is the motivation, it seeks deep. It goes beyond external law keeping and goes beyond into genuine love and obedience for Jesus. And see, the one who's under grace doesn't ask, what can God do for me? Rather, the one under grace asks, what can I do for God? 
if I can put on my JFK uniform right here, the inaugural address. Church, family, ask not what God can do for you, but ask what you can do for God. Because God has done everything for me in grace. And this is all about responding. It's all about doing what Christ says, presenting our members, seeing sin, not having dominion. That's what it means to love grace. But if you don't love grace, you don't understand grace. If sin is master over you, you may not be under grace. You may be under law. Because it's not seeing freedom there. All right, let's let's look at the details, right? Verse 15, then here comes this question. After the promise and the power, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Then Paul asks, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? He says, by no means. Now, this is the second time this objection has come up. First time is in in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and Paul brings up the reality of our union with Jesus. And, and, and he says, when you come to Christ, you're united with Christ. You're united in his life. You're united in his death. He died to sin. You died to sin. He's raised from the dead. You are raised to walk in newness of life. And we cannot sin because we've died to sin. And here at the beginning of verse 16, Paul gives a second answer, right? The first answer is based upon the union with Christ, and, and the second answer is based upon coming to Christ. How is it that you came to Jesus? That's how he's going to respond. And look what he says in verse 16. Right? Are, are we to sin? Right? In other words, and, and people asking this question are asking the question because grace is so strong and so free that, that, that if I'm forgiven, if I'm totally justified, then should I sin? He says, no, think about how you came to Christ. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, rather than using a military illustration here, Paul uses a slavery illustration. I mean, just just look at how many times he mentions slavery here, beginning in verse 16. Twice in verse 16... Verse 17, he mentions it. 18, he mentions it twice in verse 19. That's four times, six times in, in four verses. It's the dominating idea of verses 15 and following. Are, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you signed up, when you enlisted, you enlisted your life into a life of slavery? In fact, that's what it really means to be a Christian. Here's my point. Embrace your slavery. Not only report for duty, not only present yourselves to God once, continually. Not only love your country, that is love grace and and know of what, what grace is. But here, embrace your slavery. Embrace how it is that you signed up. 
And you can see the whole idea about, uh, about how we came to Christ there in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? There it is. You present yourself as a slave. That's what it means to be a Christian. John MacArthur wrote a book entitled Slave. And uh, just kind of right at the beginning when he, he sets the tone of it, he, he spoke about the, um, the early Christians who, who lived a life of self-sacrifice. And then they said that their self-identity had been radically defined by the gospel. Whether slave or free in this life, they had all been set free from sin, yet having been brought, bought with a price... They had all become slaves of Christ. As a Democrat says, this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a slave of Christ. It says the New Testament reflects this perspective. Commanding believers to submit to Christ completely. Not just as hired servants or spiritual employees. But as those who belong wholly to him. We are told to obey him without question and follow him without complaint. Jesus Christ is our master. A fact we acknowledge every time we call him Lord. In fact, you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that he's the master and the corresponding to the master is the slave. We say the Lord Jesus Christ, I am your slave. That was what I added, but it says we are his slaves. Called to humbly and wholeheartedly obey and honor him. We don't hear about that concept much in churches today. In contemporary Christianity, the language is any but anything but slave terminology. It's about success and health and wealth and prosperity and the pursuit of happiness. We often hear that God loves people unconditionally and wants them to be all that they want to be. He wants to fulfill every desire, every hope, every dream, personal ambition, personal fulfillment, personal gratification. These have all become part of the language of evangelical Christianity and part of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Instead of teaching the New Testament gospel where sinners are called to submit to Christ, the contemporary message is exactly the opposite. Jesus is here to fulfill all your wishes. Right? Ask not what... God can do for me. Ask what God can do. But, but the, the balance of that is God has done everything we need for attaining a life and godliness in Christ. He's done everything. But our response isn't to say more, more, because he's given it all. Our response is to give it to him. But likening Jesus to a personal assistant or a personal trainer, many churchgoers speak of a personal savior who's eager to do their bidding and help them in their quest for self-satisfaction or individual accomplishment. But the New Testament understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ could not be more opposite. He is the master and owner. We are his possession. He is the king, the Lord, the son of God. We are his subjects and his subordinates. In a word, we are his slaves. I just encourage you, church family, to embrace your slavery. We are slaves of Christ. And next time we're in Romans, I'm going to look at that more because we're going to get down 20 and following, right? You were slaves of sin. We'll, we'll pull up more about this slavery imagery. But we are slaves of Christ. 
And if slaves of Christ, then how can we be slaves of sin? That's what he's saying. You, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will serve the Lord of the universe or you will serve your own flesh. That's what Paul says again in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the, the difficulty in, in thinking about slaves and slavery is that it, it conjures up Right? We, we think about slavery in our country, and it, it conjures up transatlantic trips of boats to Africa to capture men, women, and children and bring them back under brutal conditions only to live a life, a cruel life of servitude right here in the United States. And it's certainly some of that existed in the ancient world. When we think of slavery, that's what we think. We think of, of badness. And certainly the ancient world, when, when nations conquered other nations, they made them their slaves and they subjected them to cruel uh, torture, probably worse than anything that was seen in America. But, but that's not all of what slavery is. Did, did you notice in verse 16 that there's this willing aspect of things? There is a, a willing slavery that is going on. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves. There is a, a you going and you presenting. Now, the African slaves, they didn't present themselves at all. They didn't see the English coming here and said, oh, I will be your slave. No, they were running the other way. And the British and the Americans captured them and brought them back. But this slavery Paul's talking about here is different. Here we have a, a willing slave. When you presented yourselves... As slaves, And there are sometimes in biblical slavery is a bit different than we normally think of slavery. The Old Testament law, provisions were made for those who loved their master, who were in a good slave relationship. And sometimes that, that worked in Exodus 21. Right? It's a time for the slave to leave. But there are times when the slave says, no, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go free. And in that case... The master brings him to God, basically brings him to the door, and he pierces him with an awl into his earlobe, and he's a slave forever, and the slave likes it. Because the master's good for him, and he is a willing servant. Now, in many ways, right, I've been using this imagery of soldiery. I think when you hear of biblical slavery, think military, because those two are off have a lot of, of overlap. So just think about being a soldier. When you sign up, right, you're signing up for hardship. Um, you're signing up for long hours. You're signing up for low pay. You're signing up for abuse at boot camp. You're signing up for tremendous difficulty, perhaps at war. You're signing up for separation from your family. Whether that's a deployment, sometimes it's training, you're signing up for a secretive life that you can't disclose some information, and sometimes even you are signing up for death. Why, why would anyone do that? Well, because in doing so, there are some benefits to the military. They provide a salary. They provide shelter. They provide food. They provide the uniforms. They provide health care. Afterwards, they provide education benefits. 
all of that is true of biblical slavery as well, in the best of sense. Right? You, you're a slave, and your master gives you all of your health care, all of your food, all of your clothing, all of your needs. Now, you may not get ahead and, and get rich, but there is some satisfaction. That this, is, this is helping me. I love my master. I am going to stay here. Now, that can be a sense of biblical slavery. Now, there is something here where even that misses a little bit. And Paul acknowledged that. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So in describing our, our union with Christ, our commitment to Christ, and using it as a slave, he's saying, you know what, it's a human term. And all of my talk here this morning about, about military, it, it, it's just a human term, right? But it does give us a picture of what it means to follow Jesus and how it is that we need to present ourselves. But it is this picture. But again, he comes back to the same thing over and over and over again. You once were a slave of sin, but now you have submitted yourself to Jesus. So don't, don't go back and be enslaved by those things again. In fact, you know, it's, it's a little bit like uh, if you tell a slave to act like a free man, you're insulting the slave. Because he's not a free man. I'm a slave. How, how am I supposed to act as a free man? I'm a slave. But if your slave has been set free and he still has these tendencies to act like a slave, he's like, get on with it, man. Act like a free man. You're not a slave anymore. I mean, can you imagine the difficulty of coming out of slavery? And, you know, we still as a nation are, are, are facing some of the difficulties of what it means to, to come out of slavery 100 years later, 150 years later. Just, and especially coming out of that, you, all you've known is, I'm just going to do what the master says. And then all of a sudden, right, Abraham Lincoln comes along, there's a civil war, and all of a sudden I'm free. And I think many African-American slaves had a tendency to, to just go back into their slavery. But they're free. And that picture is almost exactly the picture here that Paul gives. Right? Verse 19. You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. And just as you were there, don't be there any longer. But stay out of that and present yourselves, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Just as once our flesh pulled us that way, so likewise, submitting yourself to Christ, may he pull you in the, the right way. Verse 17 and 18, I just want to, want to end here because Paul is talking about those in Rome. And as I think about preaching here this morning, this is where I am. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So there's an encouragement there, right? is that Paul is writing to these people. It's not as if they, they aren't, but he senses the struggle. In Romans 7, we're going to talk about that struggle. But here we were, that they believed, and that they were obedient, and it wasn't just external, it was from the heart. They were changed, they turned that way, and they were submitting to God. They had reported for duty. They did love their country, they loved grace, and they were embracing their slavery. But Paul is getting into it again, saying, embrace your right slavery but overall, I just say this. Embrace your slavery that you are a slave to Christ. And if he's my master, he's the one I need to obey. And that was the arrangement that I had, signing up. Now, the problem across America many times is that people sign up for a different call. right? They, they, they sign up for Christianity because they think their life is going to get better. 
And God says, no, you might, might get worse. Acts 14, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? When, when John Bunyan described the Christian life, he described it as a, as a life of cruel, difficult hardship, of a walk with a burden on his back through many dangers and trials. And it's a hard life. But that's what we've signed up for. And maybe you've come here this morning and said, I didn't sign up for that. Well, pity the preacher who preached to you falsely. Right? We sign up for hardship. We sign up for slavery. And then when we understand how we start, so it will help in our sanctification. But if you miss, you miss the start, you could very easily miss your sanctification. But if you from the start understand that, yes, I am a slave, a slave to Jesus, then that will work itself out in sanctification. Union with Christ, how he began with Christ. It's the two great principles we've begun with here. We'll talk more next time about slavery and sin and righteousness, but I think that's uh, enough for today. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray for us at church. I pray that we would be those who would truly present ourselves to you. God, every way, you are a master and our sovereign Lord, worthy of all of our obedience and respect and submission. How could we possibly sin, O oh God? May we be dependent upon you, trusting you for your grace to help us overcome these things. And I would pray, Lord, for those who are just possibly even evaluating their their salvation or their call to or how it is they came to Jesus and didn't really realize what it all meant. I know that was my life when I was 21 years old, hearing for the first time just what a, a life of following Christ meant, um, what the full gospel is. And Father, I, I pray, God, for those maybe who are here today haven't heard it straight, that they might hear it straight and, and might say, well, maybe I maybe didn't hear it right to begin with, but I hear it right now and I am all in. I'm all in for Christ. Because, oh God, you've been all in for us. And in that, oh Lord, we do rejoice. Thank you, God, for the order of sanctification and salvation. Sa- salvation and sanctification. God, you saved us. And I pray you'd work that work to sanctify us. So help us, oh Lord. I pray that this Memorial Day weekend we'd, we'd thank you for the, uh, the people who've fallen so that we could enjoy our picnics, so we can enjoy our day off, so that we can enjoy our, our outdoors. God, we are, we are thankful for where you have placed us, the sacrifices of those who've gone before us. God, may we live in light of those sacrifices. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.